Our mission in life is to make a positive difference, not to prove how smart or right we are. Peter Drucker. Man's time here is finite, but the influence of a man is infinite. The question is what shall we do with the daylight that remains? Welcome back to the show. This is our 100th podcast episode. So very excited to be doing this. Um, Today we're talking about The Earned Life, written by Marshall Goldsmith. He's a New York Times bestseller for triggers, as well as uh, what got you here won't get you there. So he got a degree in behavioral science and then has slowly narrowed his focus down to just working with high-performing CEOs and that's been his niche for many years now. And he's worked with some of the greatest CEOs that we've heard of. Marshall Goldsmith, very cool guy, great writer. Uh, I enjoyed the book. Just reading the book um, was was a pleasurable read. So uh, I think you'll enjoy it. He's got a lot of life experience. He's um, in his 70s, he mentions. And so he's been at in the game for a long time. And He's quite obsessive about his work. So not only has he been in the game, he's worked incredibly hard for a long time with some amazing people. So um, in general, just one of those people that you you kind of want to understand what's in his brain and what he's got to offer. So before we jump into this book, I want to ask you guys to please go over to BronsonWilkes.com and enter your email in there, sign up for the email list so that we can uh, build the community and continue to grow and reach more people. All right, let's jump in. In the introduction, he says, my premise is that our lives toggle back and forth between two emotional polarities. At one pole is the emotion we know as fulfillment. We judge our internal sense of fulfillment against six factors that I call the fulfillers. Purpose, meaning, achievement, relationships, engagement, and happiness. These are the guideposts that dictate all our striving in life. We invest enormous resources of time and energy to find purpose and meaning in our lives to be recognized for our achievement, to maintain our relationships, to be engaged in whatever we do, and to be happy. So he breaks it down into these principles, and he he basically, this whole book is about what is an earned life? How do you get these, you know, this purpose and meaning and achievement in your life? How do you have strong relationships in that? How do you kind of, on an individual level, decide what are the things you want to make an impact on in life and how do you discover those things? Like a lot of people don't even know what they are shooting for. And I struggled with that for a long time as well. Like I have so many varied interests and talents. It's difficult to narrow it down and decide, you know, I want to focus on this one thing or these two things or something. And, um, he kind of, he helps, he helps people understand, uh, what the next step in their life would be. He says the antithesis of fulfillment is regret. And where does regret come from? He says, regret is the polar opposite of fulfillment. Regret, in the words of Catherine Schultz in her wonderful 2011 TED Talk on the subject, is the emotion we experience when we think that our present situation could be better or happier if we had done something different in the past. Regret is a devilish cocktail of agency. Our regrets are ours to create. They're not foisted upon us by others and imagination 
we have to visualize making a different choice in our past that delivers a more appealing outcome now. Regret is totally within our control, at least in terms of how often we invite it into our lives and how long we let it stick around. And that an interesting definition and idea of, of regret. It's an imaginative state. It's something that we're we're imagining our circumstances being very different because we made you know different choices. Now, sometimes we have sufficient knowledge to make the right choice and make the wrong choice anyway, and that's a regrettable time. But sometimes we harness regret in our lives, even though we didn't have all the information we needed to make a better decision. We did the best we could. It turned out poorly. And now we look back on that like, oh, I should have done it differently. But had you known, you would have done it differently. So like, so we're creating regret on something that we we did actually the best we could on. So there's a lot of ways that you can bring regret into your life. But the the takeaway for me was like, it is an imaginative state that we're saying, had I done it differently, then I'd be in a different situation now, which also ties into a lack of gratitude for your uh the the positives in your life the good things you have the things you've learned and developed and and created a couple of remedies for regret he says being open to opportunities that come our way can help us avoid regret even when we believe we're already happy and fulfilled where we are the simplest tool i know to finding fulfillment is being open to fulfillment so even if you're happy with what you've got be open to some new experiences new ideas new journeys so skipping a bit ahead he says Red Hayes, the man who wrote the 1950s country music classic Satisfied Mind, explained that the idea for the song came from his father-in-law, who one day asked him who he thought the richest man in the world was. Red ventured a few names. His father-in-law said, you're wrong. It is the man with a satisfied mind. This is our operative definition of an earned life. We are living an earned life when the choices, risks, and effort we make in each moment align with our overarching purpose in our lives, regardless of the eventual outcome. So, s- sort of setting the foundation for you of what is an earned life, how do you gain that fulfillment, meaning, achievement, relationships, and then the opposite is regret. So how do we avoid as much regret as possible? And how do we how do we achieve that earned life? Something truly earned makes three simple requirements of us. We make our best choice supported by the facts and the clarity of our goals. In other words, we know what we want and how far we need to go. We accept the risk involved. We put out maximum effort. The deliverable from this magical brew of choice, risk, and maximal effort is the glorious notion of an earned life. It's a perfectly valid term as far as it goes. An earned reward is the ideal solution to every goal we pursue and every desirable behavior we try to perfect in ourselves. We are said to earn an income and a college degree and other people's trust. We must earn our physical fitness. We must earn respect. It is not given to us freely. And so on with the long menu of human striving, from a corner office to the affection of our children, to a good night's sleep, to our reputation and character, all must be earned via choice, risk, and maximal effort. This is why we valorize the merited success. There's something heroic about applying maximum energy, wit, and will to get what we think we want. Wow. I could not say that any better. Uh, I thought that was beautifully written and a powerful powerful paragraph. In these pages, we will see that an earned life makes only a few demands of us. 
Live your own life, not someone else's version of it. Commit yourself to earning every day. Make it a habit. Attach your earning moments to something greater than mere personal ambition. And later in the book, we're going to get into uh, that people basically feel fulfilled when they serve other people. So it's a lot of us are very driven by finances and other things, but um, the thing that makes people feel most fulfilled in the end, serving other people. So I'm skipping some of the story here, but I want to get to the punch here. He says, this is the great Western disease of I'll be happy when it is the pervasive mindset whereby we convince ourselves that we'll be happy when we get that promotion or drive a Tesla or finish a slice of pizza or attain any other badge of our short or long-term desires. Of course, when the badge is finally in our hands, something comes along that compels us to discount the badge's value and renew our striving for the next badge and the next. We want to reach the next level in the organizational hierarchy. We want a Tesla with more range. We order another pizza slice to go. We are living in what Buddha called the realm of the hungry ghost, always eating but never satisfied. This is a frustrating way to live, which is why I'm urging a different way of seeing the world, one that venerates the present moment rather than the moment before or after. I mean, that's not a new concept to any of us, right? Live in the moment. Be where your feet are. We've, we've we talked about these books, um, but he, he, he really captures it there in saying like, I'll be happy when like constantly searching for a new high, a new thing. And, and sometimes those things do bring happiness. Oftentimes they do a short, short bit of high happiness, but we always, we always need kind of both uh, a new goal to chase and gratitude for what we have. And so sort of finding that balance is a, a key principle to feeling fulfilled in life. He says, we don't regret because we tried and failed. We regret not trying. I definitely resonate with that. Uh, most of the things I regret are things that I let kind of slip through my fingers because I was, because I had some fear, some laziness, uh, distractions, right? And then years later, you look back and go, hmm, what might have been? Uh, it's not it's not the failures, it's the lack of trying. Now he has a bit in here on sort of tribalism, right? We have a group that we really identify with and say that we're a part of. They represent me, I represent them to a degree. He says we also have what he calls a referent group. He also says that we have a counter-referent group someone that we sort of despise or do not want to identify with, right? So whether that's Democrat, Republican, or you like this sports team and hate that one, right? We have sort of this antithesis, the thing that we do not want to be associated with. And oftentimes the counter-referent group has a ton of influence on how we make decisions. So he he gives this story about a, a business leader that didn't take a job because he was he was afraid of the impact or the view or perspective of his uh, counter-referent group. And I think that's true of a lot of people. Now, here's another interesting concept that I think uh, is really highlighted in the book, True, True Believer. 
where he says, In the past, almost all of us were second-class citizens from birth. We could not vote, choose our leaders. Conformity was the rule, and any difference was punished. Whether that difference was whom we loved or which deity we worshipped, if in fact we worshipped any deity, we may have had more sorrow, but we had less regret. You cannot regret your decisions if you're not allowed to make decisions. The trend line of the last hundred years suggests that we will continue acquiring more rights and more freedoms. In much of the world, we are no longer serfs. Women can vote. Hundreds of millions of people are rising out of poverty, and it's okay to be gay. In other words, many of us have reason to be optimistic. The icing on this layer cake of optimism is technology. In expanding our mobility and access to information, technology has multiplied the number of choices beckoning us. More freedom, more movement, more options in work and play. So options often cause opportunity for regret. They also have opportunity for fulfillment. So it's uh, the problem is we're being flooded with more and more and more and more opportunities. So as I mentioned, true believer, uh, sometimes people don't want to have so many options. They don't want to have to make the choices. So they would rather s- sort of subject themselves to this religious leader or political leader or some party that says, this is how the rules work. This is the code. You no longer have a choice in the matter. Just follow the code. And it sort of removes that responsibility or burden of making choices, making the right choices, maybe standing outside the crowd, uh, trying to gather more information so that you know that you're making the best decision you can in the moment. Instead, you just follow the leader, right? And uh, so we may have had more sorrow under sort of a socialistic or tyrannical government or something like that, but uh, less regret because you know, we had no choice in the matter. <laughs> An interesting idea and concept. Now, here's another really interesting idea coming on the back of these choices. He says, our first option, unfortunately, is inertia. And he's talking about what, what we're used to in life, the standard operating procedures that we've grown up with. And he says, our default response in life is not to experience meaning or happiness. Our default response is to experience inertia, what we're familiar with, right? I uh, When I first started a website of my own, that was one of the first things I wrote about is like, we all grew up in a culture. You have a family culture, you have a maybe local community or city culture, you have a state culture, you have a country culture, right? There's all these cultures layered upon each other and and you sort of learned to navigate that culture, learned to survive and thrive in that culture. But then you go off to college, you marry into another family, you like things change and suddenly you've got blending of cultures and you've got to sort of learn new methods, right? Some of those, maybe some of those past cultural habits and actions, behaviors, communication no longer serve you in this new state. So you've got to change. But uh, a lot of times we default to what we knew, what we know, what we're familiar with, which he summarizes very well with his second point in this chapter that says, our programming locks us in place. Now, this is a little frightening. He says, we are winded by the pace of change. He says, the pace of change you are experiencing today is the slowest pace of change you will ever experience for the rest of your life. (laughs) 
people often think that once I'm married, I can just chill at home or once I have kids or once the kids are out of the house or whatever, that, that things are going to slow down. But the truth is technology keeps going. The more lives that you care about and you're invested in, the more chaos that exists. Um, jobs are turning over faster. Technology is changing and changing our jobs and our the way we communicate, the way we're employed, the way we travel. Like everything just continues to go faster and faster and faster. So this is the slowest pace that you'll ever experience from now on. And it's exhausting. We are narcotized by vicarious living watching everybody have a better life than us on Instagram, even though it's curated and uh, intentionally doing things for the gram so that it it's catchy and holds people's attention. We have run out of runway. This is an interesting one where, you know, some of your ambitions, you, you simply run out of runway. You don't have enough time, energy, or resources to actually participate in that. And so there's certain, certain things you got to put on the back burner. I've already shared a lot of stuff and we're literally only getting into chapter three here. So I'm going to start skipping bigger chunks, but he says the earning checklist, it's motivation, ability, understanding, and confidence. So this is the earning checklist. He says those four attributes are still essential success factors and not as duh obvious as you might think. Remove any one of these virtues from your toolbox and you've dramatically increased your odds of failing. So motivation, ability, understanding, and confidence. So I do want to hit on some of these real quick. Motivation. Motivation may be the high octane fuel that drives our goal achievement, but it cannot be divorced from the actual doing of the specific tasks required to achieve each of our goals. That's what makes motivation one of the more misunderstood and therefore misused words in the lexicon of goal achievement. Several times a week, I hear people describe themselves or someone they admire as motivated to succeed or motivated to be a good boss or teacher or father or partner or some other broadly defined role. Used in that context, motivated has no meaning because I don't know anyone who's motivated not to succeed or motivated to be a bad, a bad boss. Motivation is being confused with desire. They may as well be saying, I want to succeed. I want to be a good boss. Who doesn't? Being motivated is not merely a supercharged emotional state induced by having a goal. It is that heightened emotional state coupled with a supercharged impulse to do each of the specific tasks required to achieve that goal. It is incorrect to say that you are motivated to make money or lose weight or become fluent in Mandarin, even if you feel such statements are true, unless you consistently do the big and small things required to achieve such goals. This was eye-opening to me. Uh, I think a lot of people misuse the word motivation. And therefore, people say Motivation doesn't matter. Or, you know, you can't just rely on motivation. I've heard Jocko, who I think is a brilliant person and, and obviously succeeded in many areas, say, I'm not motivated to get up at 4 a.m. and exercise. I'm not motivated to exercise every day or go grapple in jujitsu with somebody, but I do it every day because that's what I said I was going to do or because I'm determined or whatever. But he's Marshall's saying that that's a misuse of motivation. Like motivation is the, the willingness and determination to do 
the small things, the tasks that get you to that goal, uh, which I really like the clarity on that definition. Misunderstanding our motivation and overestimating our willingness to fulfill it may be the two defining errors you'll face as you create your own life. He has quite a bit on uh, how we overestimate our actual willingness and motivation. <laughs> Probably true. So this is very interesting. He says, here's a not so dirty secret of super successful people. The smartest, most accomplished people I know are the most avid builders of their own support group and the most reliant on their group for help. And they're not shy about admitting it. I know this because I coach some of them. Being in their support group is part of my job. I see how often they go beyond the walls of their organization for counsel and comfort. I see how they use the advice and how it connects directly to their success. For them, a support group is like having a higher gear to make things happen more smoothly and quickly. If it works for them, why not let it work for you? The most successful people he knows are the most reliant on a group that they've intentionally built. Um, that's probably something that I've not done a great job of. Uh, I, I tend to go into my cocoon and, and work by myself and see how it turns out. <laughs> so I mentioned earlier, like making choices is a bit exhausting to us. And he says, extensive research shows that the process of making a choice probably represents the biggest expenditure of your mental energy each day. And it leads to depletion, which can ultimately lead to bad decisions from the benign choice of what to have for breakfast to the snap decision of answering or ignoring a ringing phone to the time consuming, often nerve rattling process of researching test driving and haggling with sales managers in order to buy your next automobile. They all add up to an existence that is dominated by our choices to live any life. You have to make choices to achieve an earned life. You have to make choices with an expanded sense of scale, discipline, and sacrifice. Now, one remedy to the exhaustive list of choices we have to make daily is to create routines in your life. And that's why very successful people have solid routines. You'll hear of people saying that, that, you know, Sam Walton did this every day or whatever, right? Uh, they eat the exact same breakfast. They wear the same clothes. They drive the same route to work that like they limit the number of small, uh, choices that really don't matter in their day, uh, as far as long-term happiness, make those decisions once and just do it forever so that they can focus on the thing that they really care about, that they want to make an impact on in the world. I loved his section on ambition and there's some good stories in here that you should read, but I'm going to skip to his definition here. He says, ambition is what we want to achieve. It is our pursuit of any defined goal. It is time-bound, ending the moment we achieve the goal. It is measurable. Our ambition is not singular. We can contain multitudes of goals simultaneously, professional, advocational, physical, spiritual, financial. It may be the greatest common denominator among successful people. Aspiration is who we want to become. It is our pursuit of an objective greater than any defined time-bound goal. We aspire to serve others or to be a better parent or embody more consistently a way of living or treating other people. Frank, with his expressed devotion to leading a balanced life, excelled at this from early adulthood. 
I was a slow learner, never identified a grander meaning in life until my sixth decade. Unlike ambition, aspiration doesn't have a clearly marked finish line. It is a continuous process with an infinite time horizon. It defines measurement. It is an expression of our higher purpose. Our aspiring may change over time, but it doesn't go away. Whether we articulate it or not, we stop aspiring when we stop breathing. <laughs> so ambition and aspiration, two different things. Ambition is what we want to achieve because that's essentially a drive to accomplish X, Y, and Z. And that could be in any field of our life. Aspiration is this, this grand vision, undefined. Um, it, it sort of keeps us wanting to be ambitious, I guess. Take note of this. Any positive, lasting self-improvement we earn in life derives from action, working in concert with ambition and aspiration. When these three independent variables become interdependent, serving one another, we are unstoppable. You see those people that are in like, as they say, a flow state, someone that's just really got the action in line with their purpose, their meaning, their ambition, their aspirations. They're all just sort of working together. Uh, it's really phenomenal to see. So he gets into his own story about trying to decide whether you should be a jack of all trades or a specialist. And he, in the end, says specializing is probably better, though uh, it really depends on your attitude, your characteristics, etc. But he says he didn't really learn what his specialty was for a long time. Slowly started narrowing. He got his degree in behavioral science and then started working with companies and then leaders and managers. And he ended up working with one very high-performing VP that reported to a, a CEO of a large multi-billion dollar company. And he wasn't sure he could help this guy, but uh, was willing to try. And he said, you know what? If it works, you pay me. If it doesn't work, you don't pay me. And the guy was going to be fired. So it was a very like, you know, it was a tipping point for them. And it worked very well. And so then he started working with CEOs because if if these VPs are future CEOs, the CEOs probably have all the same things, right? And they need they need help as well. So he he slowly just narrowed it down to I only work with high performing CEOs. And that that became his specialty. But it took him decades to get there. He says, continuing to slice thinner, I also told would-be clients that if they were looking for help on traditional management issues like strategy, sales, operations, logistics, compensation, and shareholders, I was not their guy. I focused on one thing, the client's interpersonal behavior. If he or she was doing something that was counterproductive amongst colleagues or at work, I could help him or her change for the better. This process didn't happen overnight. It took years of sampling and stumbling of absorbing client feedback, of calling my weak spots from my portfolio and keeping what worked. By my late 40s, I had sliced the loaf thin enough. I was not only a specialist in interpersonal behavior in the workplace, I had purposely narrowed my universe of potential customers to an infinitesimal number. Just CEOs and people of similar rank, I might as well have limited my job to being a heart surgeon who only repaired aortic valves in left-handed men in New Hampshire. But the more I stuck to this narrow job description, the better I got at it until there was a day that I could legitimately say my one trick, helping successful executives achieve lasting behavioral change, was now my genius. 
Not many people were doing this 30 years ago. Not only had I created a unique job suited to my limited interests and skills, but for a while there, I practically had the field all to myself. I had created a life I could literally call my own. When that happens, the world beats a path to your door. And that, I'm convinced, dramatically improves your odds of living a life in which fulfillment overwhelms regret. You've created a virtuous circle in which you're doing what you were meant to do. You're good at it. People recognize you for it and seek you out. And you're constantly improving. It's an invaluable position to attain, the essence of an earned achievement. You've become what I like to call a one-trick genius, which he goes on to say is different from a one-trick pony. A one-trick pony is somebody that only has one skill set and they have no other choice but to do that thing. A one-trick genius is somebody that's become the best at a certain trick industry, niche, project, right? And they are above and beyond any other option, a one-trick genius, finding your skill set and going deep in that thing. A bit more on this same idea, he says, they're the kind of people the Nobel Prize winning physicist and teacher Richard Feynman had in mind when he advised his students, fall in love with some activity and do it. Nearly everything is really interesting if you go into it deeply enough. Work as hard and as much as you want to on the things you like to do best. Don't think about what you want to be, but what you want to do. Keep up some kind of a minimum with other things so that society doesn't stop you from doing anything at all. So go deep. Find those things that you enjoy doing and find a way to be able to do that regularly and then become very, very good at it. So there's this story in here, this gentleman named Sandy, who uh, had the task of figuring out which of the employees were providing the most valuable, most value for the company and how he could prove that. And so he came up with these formulas and things. He said, basically, this section of people were providing 90% of the value for this company. He says, these people, Sandy also learned, were invariably specialists and their value was embedded in that term. They were special. Pay them whatever it takes to keep them, he said. So when you become a specialist with some great skill that's valuable to the marketplace, you uh, you can basically earn, earn as much as you want because uh, you're the leader in the industry, you're the leader in the task, and companies need your skill set. The Life Business Review. The objective of the Life Business Review, or LPR, is to close the gap between what you plan to do in your life and what you actually get done. <laughs> he created these life plan reviews uh, working with Alan Maloli, who used the same format in his uh, leadership reviews every week. Same time, same place, same format. He would start every meeting. Hi, I'm Alan Maloli. I'm the CEO of Ford. Here's my objectives. And it would basically score them zero to 10. And every one of his executive leaders would follow the exact same format, their objectives, where they're at with them. There was no judgment. It was safe, a safe place to talk, to be open and vulnerable. And uh, it was like five minutes each. Very short to the point. So they started this with uh, leaders, not not in an organization, specific organization, but future leaders, a hundred people that they wanted to do. And they organized them into small groups and they would lead these small groups uh, weekly. And these people 
loved the format and the people they were working with was like Pau Gasol, a basketball player transitioning from, from the NBA to, you know, the next stage of his life. Uh, Gail Miller, who's here in Utah, the Miller family that used to own the, the jazz, they own a deal, car dealerships and theaters and restaurants and all kinds of stuff. They're, they're a, a billion dollar family. And, uh, and then it was led by him and Maloli and a bunch of other CEOs, uh, they're very high performers all over the country, a diversity of people. They all had different interests, different uh, situations in life, different ages, etc. And they brought tons of value to one another. So the leaders, though they led the meeting and sort of had the cadence laid out and would stop people if there was problems, which there were very few, the people actually provide value to one another and help the leadership. So very interesting, but they had the format where they were working on certain things and they tracked effort more than goals. And because the effort turns into results and you can't control all the results all the time, but you can control your effort most of the time. And uh, that turned out to be a very, very helpful thing for all of these leaders. And he suggests that this may be the biggest thing you could do in your life is set up. What are the things you want to do? It could be as simple as, I want to express my love to my wife more, or I want to express to my children something. It could be, I want to stop this kind of annoying little habit that bothers me and the people around me. It could be, I want to, you know, work towards this degree or some large thing, but basically track those simple little things daily, put your effort towards that goal and make yourself accountable to a community and your success rates will skyrocket. All right. I think we've, we've read enough here. There's a ton of other good stuff in here. So I'm going to leave you with just one more insight. And that is in chapter 14, where he, which is titled credibility must be earned twice. What is the purpose of living an earned life? One answer I admire comes from Peter Drucker, who said, our mission in life is to make a positive difference, not to prove how smart or right we are. He says, we alone define how we make a positive difference. Some people do it on a grand scale of sacrifice and ambition, doctors saving lives, activists righting wrongs, philanthropists reshaping society. Others do it with humble, small-scale gestures, going out of our way to comfort a friend in pain, coaching Little League, introducing two people who end up falling in love, being the parent our children need. In between these extremes, there are a myriad of com commonplace good deeds that create a legacy of thoughtfulness and kindness. When I have asked successful people to characterize the fulfillment they get from pursuing an earned life, the number one answer by far is some variation of helping people. So find a way to help people with the work you do. So the last thing on this topic, credibility is a reputational quality earned over time when people trust you and believe what you say. Earning credibility and earning credibility is a two-step process. The first step is establishing your competence in something that other people value and doing it well on a consistent basis. The second step is gaining other people's recognition and approval for your particular competence. You need both trust and approval to credibly credit yourself and credibility. <laughs> a tongue twister there for the end. But um, essentially what I took from that last bit is that you don't deserve credibility without earning 
some sort of uh, competence in an area, right? Which is why we've always gone to school and preached school so much. But uh, reading tons and tons of personal development books, finance books, marriage books, whatever it is, when you become well-versed in a topic, you become competent, right? When you become competent, you can then go sell that skill to the world. And when you've proven your competence, you become credible. And once you're credible, the sky's the limit, especially if you're in an area where you really love to go deep and continue learning and work with people and serve people, uh, the sky's the limit. So Anyway, fantastic book. I didn't even mention there's exercises at the end of each chapter that you should be doing, right? So read each chapter, do the exercise. Uh, Marshall Goldsmith has been an extremely impactful guy in the lives of people that we all have been served by, CEOs of the biggest companies that you know. And so a uh, very reputable person. He's earned his credibility and his competence is sound. So um, I definitely re- I recommend this book, The Earned Life by Marshall Goldsmith. So as always, I'll put the link below. I urge you to go purchase this one. This is episode 100. Thank you guys for listening. We'll catch you on the next one. Hey, thanks for listening to the entire episode. As a token of gratitude, I want to give you a discount on my book, Ingrained. Head over to bronsonwilkes.com slash store and download Ingrained for less than a dollar with the coupon code GOALS, G-O-A-L-S.